like to ask you to be seated and take out your sermon outline. We've just asked the Lord to speak. This is how he builds the church through the proclamation of his word. If you don't have a sermon outline, that's why these gentlemen have come down here uh, to give one to you. So just lift your hand. If you're new to us today, I want you to know that we study the Bible at this time in our message. This is a sermon time, but it's a sermon time that looks very carefully at the Word of God. We look at a lot of passages of Scripture in order to renew our minds. That's exactly what this does. It brings renewal to our minds. Let me remind you of a phrase that we often say here in the life of the church. And we often do it with a hand motion because this is a principle that's very important. And some of you maybe have never thought about this before. Maybe you're new to us, never been in a church who really, really emphasizes this. But notice this idea. The Bible tells us that God's Word revives us. The Bible tells us that God's Word brings life. In fact, it says that through the preaching of the Word, that is how people are saved. And that's the ultimate life being given. We are born again in the gospel. We, have, we are made completely new. And so for those who have been born again, we still need life. And we still need encouragement. And that's what the preaching of the word does. This is what we often say. We say that truth in the mind brings hope to the heart. Truth in the mind brings hope to the heart. Can you say that out loud with me together? Truth in the mind brings hope to the heart. That's exactly what we want God to do now. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this important issue of truth. How are we going to do this? Take your Bible and turn to your table of contents at the beginning of your Bible. Okay, so everybody turn to your table of contents. I want you to notice this. Um, there are 66 books of the Bible. Um, there are 39 in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament. Now, we call them books. Um, they were um, manuscripts of some sort that were brought together into what we call the canon. Um, and the canon is the rule of measure. So they were brought together, being carefully evaluated under the leadership of the Holy Spirit um, for the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is all of the Holy Scriptures from before the Messiah was born and lived and died. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament is all of the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit has given to us after the coming of the Messiah. And so we, we just rejoice in this. Notice here the first few books of the New Testament. Let your eyes go down to the New Testament. There are four Gospels, and these are, these are the account of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, we've been looking at that Gospel of John. We spent three years studying the Gospel of John. That's the, that's the disciple John that was walking with Jesus for three years until Jesus went to the cross, ascended to the Father, and then John continued as the other apostles did in ministry. Now let your eyes keep going down. So that's the first one that he wrote. Let your eyes go down almost to the end of the New Testament list. You see first and second Peter, you see first, second, and third John, then you see the little letter of Jude, and then the big letter of Revelation. 
And so what I want, to, want you to recognize this morning is we have studied the Gospel of John a few years ago. That's the big one toward the beginning. And then we have also studied 1 John most recently. And today we're going to begin the study of 2 John. So that's 2 John um, that is right there. Um, and we're going to see that it's a very short letter. So notice what page it's on. Uh, my mind is on a certain page number, and then I want you to turn over there to that page. The Gospel of John emphasized two primary themes, truth and light, truth and light. He talked, John wrote in the most poetic of ways in telling the story of Jesus' life. And he emphasized that he was the light that came into the world. He was the truth that came into the world. The third thing that you could say that John emphasized was belief. In fact, it's stated at the beginning of John's gospel and at the end of John's gospel, these things have been written to you so that you may believe. Let's say that out loud together. These things have been written to you so that you may believe. And that's what we see the purpose of John's writing. And so the gospel goes out, the story of the Messiah goes out through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is circulated around the world. I want you to notice here um, in your, in your outline uh, uh, at the, underneath the box on the page, the letter of 2 John, the who, what, when, where, and why. I want to run over this very quickly. Who? Who is the author? The author most certainly was John, the son of Zebedee. John, the son of Zebedee. Now, he had another brother. His brother was named James, who was also a disciple. These guys were called the sons of thunder. Now, we don't know what that means. There's a lot of different things that could mean. That could mean they were big. That could mean they were boisterous. We don't know. But they, maybe they had deep voices. We, we don't know. But they were energetic guys, um, and they were two brothers in this band of 12. John was the youngest of the 12 disciples. Fill that in. He was the youngest of the 12 disciples, which also... Not doesn't, doesn't automatically mean this, but we also recognize it makes sense that he was the last to die. So all the other apostles died before him. He was the last one to die. And it's interesting that he was the only one, we believe, to have died of natural causes. How did all of the other disciples die besides John? That's right, they were martyrs. They were beheaded, they were nailed to crosses, they were drowned, they, they died deaths of a martyr death. Now John, while he was in exile as an old man on the island of Patmos, he was writing and writing letters and the Gospels and uh, the book of Revelation. Um, the Holy Spirit was using him in his older age for those purposes. But notice here with me, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved as a brother. The one whom Jesus loved as a brother. In one of the areas, he writes, the one who Jesus loved as a friend. Now, some people would say, how obnoxious of him to do that? Why would he say that? Why in the world? I mean, isn't that prideful to say, hey, I'm the one that Jesus loved, man. You know, I mean, he loved me. Look at it the other way. 
he never did name himself. He never did name himself. He didn't put his name in the picture of his gospel that he wrote or the others. He simply refers to himself anonymously. But it was kind of like everyone knew that Peter, James, and John were the ones closest to Jesus. And everyone knew that John was the one that was there taking care of his mother. John was the one that was very close to the Lord, always next to the Lord, always asking not a dumb question, but a proper question. I mean, there was a specialness in that relationship, and it says that he was the one that the Lord loved as a brother. Notice this. He's also called, a.k.a. John the Evangelist. John of Patmos, because he was exiled on Patmos, the Roman government sent him out to Patmos thinking, okay, we're going to get him out of our hair. He's part of this group called the Christians that we really don't want around, and uh, we're going to put some pressure on him. We'll put him out there on that rock in the Mediterranean. Well, it's out there that he's had time and quietness to spend time with the Lord, and the Holy Spirit would inspire him to write some of the most powerful letters and the book of Revelation that we so desperately need. He was also called, as we'll see here today, John the Elder, John the Elder, or the Beloved Disciple, the Beloved Disciple. He wrote, as we've said already this morning, five books of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Well, what? What is this thing called 2 John or 2nd John? By the way, in Europe, um, in Europe, you do not say 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. You say 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In fact, m- most of the rest of the world, not just Europe. Most of the, the Americans put 1st, 2nd, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Most of the rest of the world just simply says 1 Peter or 2 Peter. In the, in, so if you ever hear somebody do that, it's not that they're ignorant. It's not that they don't. Maybe they were discipled by somebody outside the United States. Um, so, but, it, but we say 2 John. So 2 John is a letter. Circle that word right there. It's a letter. It's a letter. So it's not a gospel account. And it's not really the revelation genre, but it is a letter to a specific church. And we'll see that in a minute. To the elect lady and her children. So 1 John that we've already studied was a letter to many churches. Fill that in. It was a letter to many churches. It was a shotgun letter. It was going out to many. And they were in the Roman province of Asia, which is really modern-day Turkey and Um, Some would consider that part of Greece and beyond uh, Turkey over into the stands a little bit, but it it was sent out to many churches. Then there was the second one. Second John, which we begin today, was a letter written to a specific church. And there's some reasons that we say that. You'll see that in a minute. Um, but there's, it was written to a specific church. We don't know which church, but it was written to a specific church. And then third John, which we'll study um, later this summer, is a letter written to a specific person. Um, and there's some reasons that we know that it was written to a, a specific person. Well, when was this written? It was written probably in the A.D. 90s, probably in the A.D. 90s. So that would be when John was very old. So at this point, he was, as we said, one of the only disciples to live to be very old. And he wrote this as an older man. And he probably wrote this around 20 years after the Gospel of John was written. 
And there's going to be a reason I'm telling you that uh, in just a minute. But notice this. He had written it 20 years after the Gospel of John was written and had been circulating. See, during this time, the church, young and, and, and vibrant, growing all around the Mediterranean world, they were looking for, well, how do we apply what we've learned about Jesus the Messiah to our lives? And so letters were, be, were being written by James and by Peter and by John. The Gospels were written to tell the firsthand account for the early church to know, oh, this is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus did. So it kind of goes from hearing by ear from eyewitnesses to being able to read letters in churches, hearing from those eyewitnesses exactly the full account. And so this was a very important aspect of, and has been certainly for the last 2,000 years, that we have a written record. We have a written record of what happened. Well, as that gospel was being, was being preached around the Mediterranean world, did everyone believe it and understand it perfectly? Did everyone believe it and understand it perfectly? No. Did everyone live it perfectly? No. There were things that got messed up. There were different people with different agendas coming along and confusing the message. There were different people that came along and said, oh, well, you don't really have to do that. I mean, there was, there was a lot of things. There, was, there were different viewpoints that were not scriptural, that were in contrast to both the Old Testament and the New Testament, as we see that come together in the full, in the full plan of God, in his, in his work in our lives, there were distortions. And so this letter of the Gospel of John had been circulating for about 20 years, and that's why we see toward the end of his life, John is having to write 1 John, and we looked at 1 John in depth over the last few months. What was one of the main purposes of 1 John being written? There were a lot of people claiming to be Christians, and they didn't understand the gospel. And either they didn't understand the gospel, or they didn't what? That's right. They didn't live the gospel. And so that's what 1 John was all about, saying, hey, you claim to know Jesus, but you sure don't act like him. Don't deceive yourself. And it was really to letters, as, to churches as well, so that churches would say, hey, we need to carefully evaluate this. These other people are preaching something different. Are they really Christians? Are they really followers of Jesus? And John, in his older age, sees and hears what's going on in the churches. And as has always been the case from the Old Testament era, where the Jews would get off on their theology, they would get off on their doctrines, they would worship the wrong gods, they would believe the wrong things, and prophets would have to come and straighten them out and teach them and rebuke them. This has always been a problem with God's people. It will always be a problem with God's people until we're safely home in heaven. Until we're safely home in heaven, the danger of false doctrine and the danger of disobedient and false living will be a danger to God's true people. 
And so we must listen to these words of correction. Just as the Old Testament believers needed to listen and listen to the message of the prophets to repent of their sin, we as New Testament believers need to listen to the warnings and the callings and the really the accusations of God's word that help us to, to see our sin and turn away from it. And so this, these letters are very, very important. This morning, I'd like for us to read this little letter. And in fact, look at this, verses 1 through 13, it's the entire letter. Blessedly, we'll make it through verse 1 today. Um, but notice here with me, 2 John chapter 1, and there's only one chapter, um, verses 1 through 13. Look what it says. The elder, right above that, John, so he calls himself the elder, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and we will be, excuse me, and will be with us forever. So this is part of his, his greeting. This is his salutation. This is the hello. I, I hope you're doing well. Notice this, and here's the blessing that he gives at the beginning. Grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Now, I want you to know that a lot of people don't pay attention to salutations in the biblical letters, and that is a grave mistake. Every word in God's word is important, and it's, everything here is for a reason, and even the salutations have much here. As you're going to see over the next few weeks, this salutation is loaded with purpose. It's not just a flowery greeting, but let's go on in verse 4. Verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children, and understand that, some of your children. What does that mean? Not all. Okay. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, this is the church that he's writing to, the lady, the lady is the church. Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning that we love one another, verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So, so far, what is he doing? He's, he's talking about their need to love one another. You know, human beings have a hard time loving one another. Even the one that you're married to, the one that you wear a ring on, sometimes it's hard. Even your children. I mean, they're bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh in this regard. And here you are, sometimes you're like, oh, my goodness, this kid, how long is it going to take? And sometimes it's your own blessed mother and father who gave you life. And it's hard to love them sometimes too. 
But look at this. We see that for those who know Christ and for those who are called together in the saving knowledge of being made God's children, that we must walk in love. We can't go through life fighting with one another whom Christ has died for. So the beginning of this, we see that he's coming down on them because there is a lack of love. This is a problem not so much with their belief as it is a problem with their behavior. He says that in verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So now we have a theological problem. This is a false doctrine. We're going to look at how that false doctrine, what they believed, what they didn't believe. But it's the same thing that he was dealing with in 1 John. Notice what it says in the middle of verse 7. Such as one, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose heart, excuse me, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, underline it, does not have God. So we're talking in the starkest terms here. This is the most serious thing. This is the difference between heaven and hell. This is the difference between being an enemy of God and a friend of God. He says in verse 9, everyone who goes ahead and does not abide, that means does not stay, does not remain, does not live in the teachings of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. There's a reason he said that. It's part of the heresy that was being taught about Jesus. Verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Wow. You mean Christians are told sometimes to reject someone? This passage is making very clear yes. Because there were deceivers who had the gospel, who had heard the gospel, at one time appeared to receive the gospel, and then they turned against the gospel for their own gain. And those are a great, great offense to God. That they don't remain in the truth, and instead they're seeking to use God for their own sinful desires. And this word says, you give them no quarter. You receive them not. Look at verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Now, this is part of the reason we know it was written to a particular church. Look at verse 13. The children of your elect sister greet you. And so we're going to look at that in just a moment here. But we want to see that this, this is a very, very important part. Look down there at the bottom of page one on your notes. Why is this being written? This is being written because of false teachers were persisting. 
they were continuing. First John had been written, but yet false teachers were persisting, and this church needed to be warned. Maybe this church was a special church to the, to the Apostle John. Maybe he had been there and lived in that town for a while and loved them and discipled them. We don't know exactly why this church was getting special attention, but we see. And notice what the false doctrines were, and we see these from 1 John. We've already studied these. Look at the two bullet points at the bottom of the page. Denial that Jesus was the Messiah from God coming in the flesh. So they were denying that Jesus was actually the Christ. That's a very, very serious um, heresy saying that Jesus is not the one who pays for our sins. Look at the next part here. Denial that Christ's death was necessary for forgiveness of sins. And we know this because of 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 5, and what was being refuted. And so some of these were common falsehoods that were there. So how does this all fit together? Flip the page and notice here with me. We're going to look at verse 1 and 2. And I, I want us to notice this. First of all, um, we've said that the elder, you see there in the beginning of verse 1, it talks about the elder. The elder. Who is the elder? Well, that is John. And the word elder can be used in two ways. It can refer to a pastor, um, elders or overseers um, are the spiritual leaders of the church. This is one of the offices of the church. John as a pastor, or it can also reference John as an aged and honored leader. So he's an aged and honored leader in the church. Um, but So both he has here the position of pastor that he had over these people in many, many ways as an apostle, but also the position as an elderly man who deserved honor to be listened to. And then we see that in verse 1. It says, to the, the elder, to the elect lady and her children. The elect lady and her children is a church. So this is a church. You can fill that in. And we see that also in verse 13. Um, if you remember what we just read, what we just saw there, he says in the very last verse, he talks about the fact that um, this sister church, the children of your elect sister, greet you. Well, let's look and see that idea of the elect lady. What does that mean? The church is made up of God's elect. These are the people, just like when you elect someone to be um, a politician, when you elect a politician to be uh, president or governor or representative or mayor or a county commissioner, they are elected. That's your choice in voting for them, and you bring them into that. Well, the church is made up of God's elect. These are the ones that God chooses out of the world for his salvation. Yes, these are the people that he, in his sovereign grace, has, fill it in, has chosen to save. He has chosen to save them. And we're not going to spend a long time on the important doctrine of divine election, but we, because we've dealt with that many times before, I will just say this. For those of you who are not used to understanding and looking at this doctrine of God's grace, of how he elects his children and how he calls them to himself and they believe upon him by his grace and by his help, 
I want you to know that we have, uh, right down here on the front row, a four-page outline of when we dealt with this a few years ago, and it's called The Beautiful Doctrine of Divine Election. And all of the passages in the Scripture that clearly point to the fact that you don't choose God, He chooses you. When you choose him, it's because he, always, because he already has chosen you. In fact, before the foundation of the world. Now, I know some of your brains are sitting there starting to go, they're spinning up right now, thinking about all of that. I want to encourage you to pick up the outline and look at that and begin to look at that, and we'll be glad to, to help you learn about that. But here's, here's a key, key thing that we see. In verse 1, it says, to the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. This is very, very clearly a reference to how God saves us in his divine sovereignty. Um, one person said to me, and I have this in the outline of divine election, and I want to encourage you to think about this, um, when I was in seminary and struggling to understand uh, the doctrine of divine election, um, a friend of seminary said this. He said, hey, man, God's election and predestination is not something you struggle with. It's something you accept. Let God be God and accept what his word says. That's what he said. And I began to study and be, begin to look at that and begin to realize this is one of the greatest doctrines of grace you could possibly imagine that God, out of the world, would choose you to be saved. He doesn't have to choose one. In fact, he would be completely justified in sending every sinful human being to hell. But the fact that he saves one, and not just one, but many, is truly a God of grace. So notice this, not only that, but the elder, the elect lady, and then whom I love in truth. And this is where we're going to finish the sermon uh, over the rest of this as we look at this idea of whom I love in the truth. Notice the number of times that truth shows up in this salutation. It's actually verses one through three. It shows up two, uh, three times in verse one and two, and then again in verse three that we'll look at next week. But four times the word truth shows up in just a sentence and a half, really uh, two sentences. It's just amazing that when God's word repeats a word over and over again, you better sit up and listen. This means something is very important. Now, if you just look at the rest of the outline that is here, I have three main points. The Bible, the word of truth, constantly centers on the theme of truth. And the next one down there toward the bottom of the page is the world under the father of lives increasingly rejects the truth and that the church is called to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. We'll go over that in just a minute. But I want you to see the incredible importance that God's word puts on this concept of truth. In fact, I want you to see that throughout the Bible, and, and this is just a very few passages that deal with this incredibly important issue. The Bible, the word of truth, up there at the top, the Bible, the word of truth, constantly centers on the theme of truth. You see, God is the God of truth. This is who he is. Notice um, on the screen, there'll be some of these passages on the screen. Um, Psalm 31.5 says, into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord. And then what does it say? God of truth. These are the very words that Jesus would 
um, would recite on the cross as he is giving up the ghost, that he gives his spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. Look at the next one. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the what? The God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the formal tr- former troubles are forgotten and all hidden and are hidden from my eyes. You see, this is the God of truth. And just mark it down, all truth is God's truth. If somebody were to say, oh look, there is this thing called gravity. Watch what happens when I let go of this pen. Gravity is God's truth. Wherever you find truth, anything that is true in the universe, that's from God. All things that are true are from God. So occasionally, psychologists and sociologists and occasionally philosophers and occasionally other people, they will come up with something that go, oh wow, look at the way the human mind works. Look at the way psychology or sociology, and they'll make some statements and you'll go, oh wow, that's, that's true. Well, just understand that there's parts of that that come from God. Now, there's a lot of things that they come up with that are not true. There's a lot of things that they come up with that are false, that are in, they're in conflict with the truth. But whatever they, whenever they come up with something that is true and the parts that they do operate on, by the way, which is part of God's common grace so that the world holds together and can function, is any truth that is in the world is God's truth. So whenever you hear someone out in secular society, and whether it's in the news or in the media or whatever, and you hear them say something that is true, just kind of recognize, well, thank you, Lord, they got that right but just watch out for what comes next because they may not get that right. In fact, a lot of falsehoods are wrapped in truth. There will be a portion of it that is true and then the other part will be false and that can be very, very dangerous for pursuers of the truth. We need to recognize that. Well, not only is God the God of truth, God abounds in truth. God, fill that in, God abounds in truth. Look at Exodus 34, 6 on the screen. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in what? In faithfulness and truth. This is a God who abounds in truth. And this is a God who always, fill it in, always speaks the truth. He speaks the truth. In 2 Samuel 7, 28. Now then, Lord God, you are God. And look what it says on the screen. Your words are what? Your words are truth. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. His words are always truth. And notice this. We shift to Christ. Christ is truth. Christ himself is truth. We see that Christ is full of truth. In John 14, 6, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. Christ revealed the truth. That's what Jesus did. He revealed the truth in John John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ spoke the truth. Christ, look at the next one there, Christ testified to the truth. 
Over and over again, we see in the scripture that Jesus is not only the truth, but he is declaring the truth. He says, when you look at me, you're looking at truth. And we see that in his perfect life, and we see that in him fulfilling the promise of God that God would save his people. And so Jesus, when we see him on the cross, we see that this is the truth of God being born out. This is the truth of God being manifest and being fulfilled. So not only is God the God of truth, and as part of that Christ is the truth, we also see the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Um, I love this one, John 14 and verse 17 says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. And look what he's called on the screen. Look what it says, the spirit of truth. You see, the Holy Spirit never lies. The Holy Spirit always tells the truth. The world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you do know him for he abides with you and will be where? in you. So those who are in Christ have the spirit of truth within them. Not only that, but in John chapter 15 and verse 26, when the advocate comes, when I will send him to you from the Father, and what is he called? The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. See, this is how people come to believe that Jesus is their Savior. When the Holy Spirit works in their heart, moves in their heart, and helps them see the truth. Have you ever noticed that some people, you can share the gospel and share the gospel and share the gospel, and somehow they just don't get it. They haven't yet understood it. And when I experienced that, I began praying, oh, Holy Spirit, would you open his eyes? Would you open her eyes? that she may come to the knowledge of the truth. Would you grant to her faith? That's my prayer. Now, I'm not the one in charge of that. I can't make her see that. I can't make him believe that. You can't either. It is the Spirit's work of that. And when the Spirit comes and testifies to them about who Jesus is, that's when somebody comes and says, you know, there, and there have been, there's been many people who have heard the gospel for years and years and years and never really believed. And then one day, somehow it all comes together. In fact, um, uh, your brother, uh, Miguel, Miguel and I, sorry, I had to think about that for a minute. Miguel and I were standing in line in Kentucky, waiting on the dinner. And um, we were there for the Truth Matters conference, in fact. And while we're standing there, the, lawns, the lines were long. Dinner was wonderful, so it wasn't too bad. But with the long, lines were long, a few thousand people at the, at the uh, conference. And we were meeting, and we, t- we were talking with a gentleman who said, you know, I went to church all my life. Um, he said, I went to church all my life. I heard the gospel. I grew up around the gospel constantly. And he said, somehow, I was just in a spiritual fog. I was, in a, I was in a fog of moralism. I just believed that I had to be good. And he said something strange happened about five years ago when I was 67 years old. I began to hear the gospel and began to say, I don't think I have received that. I don't think I understood that. Wow, Jesus is my only hope and I can add nothing to that? He came to realize 
that he had been subtly trusting in himself at a Baptist church all of his life. And then by God's grace, he said, the Holy Spirit began to reveal to me that I was a sinner and my only hope would be to look to Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he just gloriously submitted himself to Christ. And we say, and then he couldn't get enough. He said, I had no desire for the Bible for many, many years. And he said, now I can't get enough. I can't stop reading it. I can't stop rejoicing. I can't stop studying the doctrines of the Bible and the things that God has done in order to save us. You see, it's the spirit of truth that causes us to believe. And this is part of that picture of even divine election. Let's go on to the next one there. We also notice that it is God's truth that is eternal. God's truth is eternal. Psalm 117, verse 2 says his words are forever. And his, God's truth is infinite. His truth has no end. His truth is saving. We just looked at that. It's by his words that we are saved. In fact, salvation comes from faith in the truth or belief, you can write belief in the truth. Look at the screen and look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. It says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, there's that doctrine of election again, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by what? By the Spirit and by what? And belief in the truth by belief in the truth. So the truth is monumentally important. Now, notice this, what all that the truth does. The truth is also sanctifying. Not only saves you, but it sanctifies you. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, O Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so as we come to the truth, we are made more and more like Jesus. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be more and more set apart for him. So what about God's true children and the truth? What do God's true children do with the truth? So if you're truly God's child, here's what happens. God's true children love the truth. God's true children come, that are, they are set free by the truth. In John 8, 32, it says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. It will make you free. Look at the fourth one there. God's true children worship in the truth. There was a woman at the well that was there, and she was asking, where do we worship? How do we worship? Is it on this mountain, or is it on that mountain? And Jesus says, the Spirit is coming, and he's going to allow you to worship in spirit and in truth. So we worship in the truth. You see, you can't worship with falsehoods. You have to have the truth to truly worship. God's true children rejoice in the truth. It's the truth that causes them to have joy, and they are excited about that. I've been amazed and, and just so blessed, not only here in Florida and here at Sheridan Hills, but around the world at different times when I've been somewhere for a meeting, I've been somewhere for a church service for, or for some other type of meeting in France or in Africa or in Asia, and it's amazing to just uh, to be with people, and when the word is preached and uh, the truth is proclaimed, they just get excited. They're so thankful for that. 
There's many people in the life of this church that the reason that they come is this very subject this morning. It's about truth. They come to say, well, I just want to be in a place where the word of God, the truth of God is, is declared, not human ideas, not everybody's creativity and all of these other entrapments and accruedments of some type of worship, but where we're looking and we're saying, God, let us see your truth because it is the truth that will set you free, not a smoke machine. It's the truth that will renew your heart not a chill bump that runs down your spine from a special chord on the guitar or the piano or something else. It's God's truth that revives us and renews us in the, by which we worship and we rejoice in that. Not only do we rejoice in the truth, but God's true children speak the truth. And they're called to speak the truth in what? In love. We're called to speak the truth in love. God's true children meditate on the truth. The truth is important to them, so they come and they spend time thinking about it. Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, whatever, whatever things are true, Philippians 4, 8 says, think on these things. You know, part of the reason that a lot of Christians are distraught is because they just think on the things that aren't true. The, the lies of the world, the entertainments or the burdens of the world, um, the dysfunction of the world is all that they look at. And so they're very discouraged and they're very downcast and sometimes they're very confused because they're hearing all of these other things and they rarely meditate on the truth. You know, they typically meditate on the problems of the world. Can I just say to you right now that I'm preaching to myself on this point? There are times when I watch the news a lot. I used to be more of a news junkie than I am now. And there's times when I look at the issues and the problems that may be all around us, maybe with the church or maybe with society or maybe with people's lives. And if we sit there and we focus on all of those things all of the time and we allow the mind to be occupied with the problems that are before us without the word of God washing over us, it is very discouraging. But when you begin to saturate your mind by reading, you don't, you don't just do this and say, okay, I'm getting it, I'm getting it, I, I, I'm sure I'm getting it. You don't put it under your pillow and think that that's not how you get this book in your mind and heart. You get this book in your mind and heart by what? Reading it, meditating on it, having it on your coffee table gets you no points. I, I know that we, we have a, a, a friend who fell off into homosexuality for a long period of his life, and he said, my Bible was always right there by my nightstand. He said, somehow I, I thought that that was important. I thought that that was good. And here I was, lost in homosexuality. And he said, when the Lord finally got a hold of me and broke me and spoke to me, I ran to the Word, and for the first time in years, I opened it and began reading it. And he used his Word to call me back to himself. Can you say amen to that? 
but it doesn't do any good if it's just sitting there. You see, Satan will do everything he can to keep you from reading God's word. If you'll just start reading and start meditating, this is what will encourage your heart. Look at Philippians 4, 8. How about God's true children obey the truth? We see that that's a big emphasis in the gospel of John, in the um, letters of John, 1 John and 2 John, that they obey the truth. Jesus said, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and yet do not the things that I say? How about this one? God's children, true children, are guided by the truth. Um, I love Psalm 119, 105 that says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's amazing. If you will allow God's word to guide you and lead you, if you're making big decisions about your life, are we going to move here? Am I going to go to school here? Am I going to marry this person? Am I going to take this job? Are we going to adopt this child? Are we going to change to... Uh, this business, we're going to do this venture. I want to encourage you, don't make big decisions without a few things. Number one, other people who are godly praying with you. Number two, don't make big decisions without being in God's word. God will speak to you through his word. He'll either give you a peace or he'll head off a disaster. He'll keep you from things that would not be right and honoring to him. How about this last one? God's true children walk in the truth. And we see this in the life of the kings. There were some kings that were honoring to God, and there were some kings that were very, very dishonoring to God. And God calls us to be children who walk in the truth. So the truth is a very, very big deal to the Bible. It's the constant theme of the Bible. And it's a very, very big deal to all of existence in the universe. But we need to look and see for just a minute what the world does with this. You see, the world, under the father of lies, increasingly rejects the truth. The world increasingly rejects the truth. Jeremiah 9, 5 says this, everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. That's an interesting phrase. They have taught their tongue. They've learned to lie. They weary themselves committing iniquity. So they, they go after and they destroy their lives and they, they do it with such gusto in such effort that they become so tired running in their falsehoods. You see, the world runs in lies. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, Paul writes, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, and look what it says, and what? Read it out loud. Deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So they're, they're taking this thing of you trying to be godly and trying to take the gospel and distort it. Friends, that's people who don't know the truth. 
He also writes in 2 Timothy 3.8, he writes, just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses in the Old Testament, so these men in the New Testament, so these men also oppose the truth. So it's not only in society, but sometimes it's even in those around the church. And that's what this one is talking about. That even those around the church oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So these aren't saved people, these are apostate people. And Timothy is being told by Paul to watch out and deal with them correctly. And then look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It said, For the time will come when men will not tolerate sound doctrine, but with itching ears they will gather around themselves teachers to suit their own desires, so they will what? They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. There's been many times when this has happened in church history. This has happened in the second and third century. This happened in the seventh and eighth centuries. If you study church history, this has happened strongly um, before the Reformation began. This happened even in different times during the Reformation. And then you come into what is called the modern era um, where Darwinianism and modernism began to come into Christian theology and Christian thought, and many would turn aside. They would turn their ears away from the truth, and they would begin to believe myths. That is happening again in new waves right now. When we look over the last hundred years at something called Christian liberalism, that there was a higher criticism of the scriptures that began to look at it through a very rationalistic view and begin to doubt the validity and the veracity of scripture. And so seminaries and pastors began teaching, well, it's, you know, the, the main point of the whole thing is just be good. And so a false gospel began to be preached throughout um, the pulpits of the Western world. This is um, given way to all kinds of other ungodliness, that calling the church in the 80s and the 90s and then in the early 2000s to just be like the world. That's where we see churches that turn into more nightclub settings. That's, that's where we see people saying, oh, well, you know, Jesus is a, is a great addition to your life. Jesus is here to make you happy, kind of the, the, the Jesus in a genie bottle. This is, this is all part of the falsehoods that not only were alive in that day and time, but also in this day. Notice Romans chapter 12, or, or chapter 1, verses 25, and this is on the screen as well. For they exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So this is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That's what we see a fallen world has done. And why has that happened? The world is currently the realm of Satan. Fill that in. The world is currently the realm of Satan. Really? Yeah, we just studied it in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. Look what 19 says. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies where? In the power of the evil one. Now this evil one is called the father of lies. 
And he deceives the church. You see, Satan is the father of lies. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, look what it says there. You, and this is Jesus speaking to those who were deceived around him, who were very religious. These were religious people he was talking to. Keep that in mind. These were people who thought they had a relationship with God. Satan is the father of lives, John 8, 44. You are, you are of your father, the devil, and you will do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and, what does it say? The father of lies. So when we look at the Word of God, I want us to see that the Word of God is saying, God is the God of truth, and He, through His truth, has a grand and glorious plan to bring to you things that you eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and things that you cannot even imagine He has in store for those who love Him. He calls you to just walk in the truth, and then one day your eyes will see, your ears will hear, and your heart will explode with the glory that he has waiting for us. And we looked at it yesterday at the funeral. We looked at the fact that this glory is being kept for you in heaven. So he's saying, don't give in to the lies of the world. Don't go the way of the world. Don't go the easy, wide road that leads to destruction. Instead, remember the words of Christ. Come and learn the words of Christ. Come and just inculcate all of his word to your life. Allow it to exude through your life. Let this become who you are. Let this become who your home is, what your home is, what your family is. Let this become the way you think. Don't go and run with the father of lies who will deceive you. Now, what is God's plan about how his truth is proclaimed? His plan is our last point here as we close. The church, and don't you dare fold over your page yet, okay? So just hang on with me. I'll give you permission in just a minute. Stick with me. I want you to get this. This is very important. I say that in love. The church is called to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, we are not the truth. Jesus is the truth. But what God has called us to do is to be the structure that can be seen. Now, I want you to think about this for me with, a, for me, with me for a moment. John, I haven't, I haven't told you this yet. But John most likely was writing this letter in the city of Ephesus. Now the city of Ephesus was one of the most glorious Roman cities in the whole Roman world. And listen to this, the ruins there today are astounding. In Ephesus, there was a temple, the temple of Artemis. It was a temple with 127 massive columns 
all the way around it. Have you seen those, those huge temples that the Greeks and the Romans built? 127 columns. Listen to this. It's considered one of the eighth wonders of the ancient world. How did they do it? It was a glorious temple. It was there overseeing the city. It was like the ones in Athens, but this was in Ephesus. And it was dedicated to gods that were false gods that people would devote their lives to and live in absolute futility to those gods. And so when John is writing this, John is saying, and perhaps he's staring out over the city looking at that great temple, and look what he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Although I hope to come to see you soon, I am writing you these things. Excuse me, this is Timothy writing this. Um, he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Paul writing this, but here's, here's the picture that we want to see from Ephesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you these things in case I am delayed so that you will know how each one must conduct himself in God's household, which is the church of the living God. You see, this is the, the temple of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is what it is. And so John has this vision. Peter has this vision. Paul has this vision. This is the picture of the truth. What is it that stands for the truth in this world? What is the temple of God's truth? It is the church. The truth resides in the church. The truth lives in the church. If the church loses the truth, it's no longer a church. We have to be careful to hold on to the truth. We have to be careful to hold on to the truth as a church, and we have to be careful to hold on to the truth as individuals. So this message applies to all of us as individuals and as a church family that we say, this little letter is going to challenge us once again to stay in the truth. Amen? Amen. You may fold over your sheet dutifully as we think about how do we apply this to our lives? How do we kick falsehood out of our life? Where are we wrong in our thinking? Where have we self-justified? Where have we made excuse? Where have we rationalized? Where have we gone against the Word of God? Where do we repent of the things in our lives and in our hearts that are not in keeping with what God has said? How do we rejoice in the truth? May we rejoice in Christian love as we care for one another and live out the principles of his word. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, I thank you this morning that John included the word truth four times in just a couple of verses. I thank you that this highlights for us how important truth is to you and how important it is to us. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that holds on to the truth, 
that we would worship the God of truth, that we would worship Jesus who says, I am the truth, that we would depend and love and cherish the spirit of truth living within us. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who live and obey the truth as we go into this week. Lord, summertime is here. For families, that means a little bit more free time and a little bit more fun and a little bit more time together. I pray that they would run in the truth. I pray that they would be very aware of the lies that are around them, that they would not fall into falsehoods. Lord, the world is very aggressive now against the truth. Things that were evil are now being declared good, and good is actually being declared evil. Lord, I pray that we would remain in the truth, that we would abide in the truth. So Lord, help us to repent where we need to repent. Lord, help us to be disciplined where we need to be disciplined. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to proclaim it with joy, helping others come to the knowledge of the truth. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would go before us, work within our hearts, and cause us to be people of the truth in every way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.